Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. I promised you last week that we're going to be talking with Dr. Hatem Bazian about Islamophobia, but he has an emergency and he postponed for the following Thursday. But today we're going to have two segments, very interesting. Uh, one is with uh, Rwaida Abdelaziz, who is from the Huffington Post, and she's going to be talking about something in particular that has to do with the former President Trump. And then the next segment is going to be a little bit about music. So enjoy uh, the uh, music. And this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Welcome back to True Talk. I have with me uh, the very talented uh, Rwaida Abdelaziz, who is a senior reporter covering Islamophobia and immigration at the Huffington Post. She writes for other publications, but uh, I think two days ago um, I saw the latest piece uh, from Rwaida, and let me read the title. Donald Trump calls far-right anti Muslim extremist Laura, Laura Loomer terrific in a new video. <laughs> I thought uh, Laura is no longer uh, on Twitter and social media, but obviously Rawaida, she's back. Um, can you tell our listeners who she is and why you wrote this piece about it or about her? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure uh, to be on. So for those who don't know who Laura Loomer is, 
she is an American, far-right, anti-Muslim, white nationalist conspiracy theorist. And she has someone who has said vile and racist and um, really problematic things to put it lightly about Muslims and and other minorities, Um, so much so that she has been banned from several platforms. Um, We're talking about her Twitter account, like you had just mentioned, Instagram, Facebook, Uber, PayPal, Venmo, um, because of the things that she has been um, saying online about Muslims and other minority groups. However, when it comes to her Twitter account in particular, her account was reinstated. Um, just last year after Elon Musk uh, purchased the website. So she is now back on Twitter and active again. Is she only back on Twitter? Is she back on Instagram and the rest of the... Uh, uh, She's currently back, uh, back on Twitter from, from, okay. my, from what I remember. Okay, I can understand why uh, somebody could be banned from social media, but why would she ban uh, from an app that has to do with uh, driving or eating like Uber? Do you know? Yeah, well, in 2017, yeah, she tweeted, um, quote, someone needs to create a non-Islamic form, um, essentially, of, of a ride-hailing app like Uber and Lyft, because she said, quote, I never want to support another Islamic immigrant driver. Um, and so after saying that, after, get, you know, um, allegedly getting into uh, a ride with uh, a driver who she presumed to be Muslim, um, Uber, both Uber and Lyft, uh, banned her from using their platform. So what what is her relationship with the, the former president? So well, Noma is someone who has been a fan of former President Donald Trump. She um, has uh, uh, outwardly and consistently supported uh, him by expressing her, her admiration for him online, um, through, uh, like in person, et cetera. So in this last tweet um, that she tweeted earlier this week, last Sunday, uh, she mentions being um, at his golf club in New Jersey um, where she met him by coincidence. She says in her tweet that she, she wasn't planning on meeting him and that they spent the day together um, at his golf club. And she called it the best day of her life. And she took photos and videos and, and she posted it. Um, in a very long tweet where she said that there was nothing that she wouldn't do for him and that he inspires her um, even before he was a candidate for president uh, and that she calls herself his biggest fan. And if she had ever gotten the opportunity to work for him, um, she said she wouldn't even think twice about it. So this is an example of her, of her admiration for Donald Trump. So this was the first time she meets him? It was not the first time she met him. And um, so she has, um, you know, mentioned meeting him and, and speaking of her admiration for him in the past. Okay. Um, but there is, it is a bit confusing. Um, you know, earlier this year, the New York Times had reported that Trump, you know, told his campaign that he hinted at hiring her um, for a campaign role. But very quickly, the campaign itself came back and rebuked that report, saying that there were no plans in hiring her. Um, and now we just saw this tweet not too long ago of her saying that she would be open and, if anything, she would love to work for him. Now, the president hasn't, the former president, excuse me, hasn't said anything about whether or not he, about those plans to hire her. But it's definitely not the first time we've seen that interest from her um, and we've seen information um, 
uh, you know, him showing back that admiration in the in the video that she tweeted uh, not too long ago. Um, Donald Trump called her a quote very opinionated uh, lady, um, and I like that he says. And so um, he's definitely not shying away from from praising her um, and appreciating her support despite her very Islamophobic uh, past comments. What is like her qualifications other than bashing minorities to be able to work uh, with a former president? Uh, do you know if she, if he was planning or he wanted to or hinted to uh, like hire her to work on his campaign or uh, we don't know? Well, she herself has um, tried to earn political, you know, tried to earn a seat in political office in 2020. She actually won the GOP's nomination for Florida's 21st district. Um, and when she was running then, she received praise from Trump and, and folks affiliated with Trump, like his former advisor, Roger Stone, um, and others. She did eventually lose um, uh, to a Democrat. And then once again, last year, she launched her second attempt, um, her campaign for Congress, also in Florida. Um, and she she raised uh, a lot of money um, during that attempt as well. But she did also, uh, once again, ultimately lose um, in that race as well. So she's been trying very much so to, to gain um, political access somehow, some way. You know, she's not from Florida, but recently moved to Florida to these districts so that she can uh, run for office um, when she was running just last year, she ran in a district that um, would, was very much welcomed her her, her comments, um, her Islamophobic uh, comments. Um, it was a red district um, where Republicans, you know, had a pretty much a, a firm grasp uh, there, um, located in central Florida. Um, this particular district had a massive retirement community called the Villages. Um, and, and they supported Loomer. There was videos and photos of them um, holding signs of support from her, of her talking to them um, in, in, in various like, locations and having various uh, you know, meetings with, with those voters. Um, and again, this was still when she was, she was actively banned from the multiple platforms that, that we have talked about. Uh, but she did end up losing. And so every time she's tried to find her way to Washington, D.C., um, she has been unsuccessful. So uh, reports say that her working for the Trump campaign is another attempt of, of trying to do that. Okay. And to our listeners, she runs in Florida, our state. Luckily, she didn't win. But um, uh, you mentioned that she is, uh, and she, you mentioned that Laura says that she is a white or she um, supports white nationalists. And I think in your article, you said that she went on Jared Taylor's podcast, which is known among people to be like uh, supportive of white nationalist ideas for because we have people who listen to this show from all over the world uh, live actually at the moment because I tweet about it on Twitter and they do listen they might not understand what do you really mean by white nationalists like what is wrong with a white nationalist to, to be uh, supportive of such ideas and to be on a podcast of somebody who supports white nationalist ideas 
Right. And so some examples of things I think that she said that, you know, is quite telling to perhaps like the values and the principles that she stands on. Um, you know, on Gary Taylor's podcast, she said that she was, quote, a really big supporter of the Christian white nationalist movement um, and that she wanted to, to, to fight for white people. Um, things that she said in the past that I think is also really telling. Um, in 2019, um, after the, the murders in Christchurch, where a gunman um, attacked uh, and killed 51 Muslims um, in New Zealand, she had written on the platform Telegram that, quote, nobody cares about Christchurch. I especially don't. Um, again, you mentioned the comments that she had made about um, not wanting to support uh, Muslim immigrant drivers. She's called uh, Muslim savages. Uh, she continues to attack uh, Muslims themselves, especially those in office. She made uh, repeated targeted remarks at Representative um, Ilhan Omar. She was she falsely claimed that you know Representative Omar was quote pushing for another 9/11 and people needed to quote rise up against her. And so constantly we find her peddling in this Islamophobia, you know, putting out uh, you know propaganda, uh, making uh, really racist Islamophobic uh, remarks about Muslims, um, and has cozied up to other extremists. Um, other uh, white supremacists as well. And so by really uh, rubbing shoulders with these types of people, saying comments like this one, I think one can uh, understand just how dangerous her rhetoric is and how much more dangerous it would be if she were to secure political office, if she were to make it to Washington, D.C., if she were to have some sort of power and acting upon this racist, hateful, divisive language. I think uh, it's not controversial to, to call the things that she said racist, hateful, and divisive. Um, you know, there have been people on the right, the GOP, who even kept their distance from her. And so I think it really underscores the extremist language uh, in which she peddles in. Um, and to, to think that she can have some sort of political power in this country, whether that's in Florida or elsewhere, um, is a red flag that I think everyone needs to be paying attention to. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and I'm talking to journalist Ruwaida Abdelaziz. She's senior reporter covering Islamophobia and immigration at the Huffington Post. And uh, in the past few days, she published several uh, pieces. So, um, Ruwaida, uh, some people think, you know, maybe after uh, that uh, the presidency of Trump is over, we have a Democrat in the White House, he doesn't say bad things about minorities, uh, maybe there is less Islamophobia, maybe you are working less when it comes to covering uh, Islamophobic uh, events. Before we go to your answer to this question, maybe you can explain uh, to our listeners what does Islamophobia mean? How can we define it? So when you talk about a particular incident that happened a few days ago, maybe they will understand the fear of it. Of course, when we are discussing Islamophobia, um, Islamophobia uh, is an encompassing word. Uh, People use the word um, anti-Muslim uh, as well. Um, but essentially what it means is there's this extreme fear and hostility and prejudice towards Islam, Muslims, or people who are just perceived to be Muslims, right? So that they are not necessarily Muslim themselves. And so often sometimes we see this uh, with members of the Hindu and the Sikh community or people who are 
uh, brownish in skin type or may perhaps cover or just dress modestly. And so people assume that they are Muslims and act upon um, this extreme fear and hostility and often leads to hate speech, hate crimes, um, and, and the like. And it can, it, it can vary in terms of the extremity. And so it can be uh, someone being verbally assaulted at the grocery store to bullying and retaliation in the workplace and schools to institutionalize Islamophobia, where we see laws and policies that target uh, Muslims uh, disproportionately. Now, Islamophobia is a global problem. Uh, it is not unique to the U.S. We see it in all, uh, all everywhere in the world, perpetuated by Muslim and, and non-Muslim governments. And so when we discuss institutionalized Islamophobia, we are really discussing the, the social and political um, impact um, of policies and rhetoric that has on a very particular community, and and that what itself can manifest into um, issues of mass surveillance, uh, surveillance, incarceration, um, disenfranchisement of uh, Muslims um, anywhere around the world. And so, this is a very brief overview of what Islamophobia or anti-Muslim prejudice can look like on a communal level, from one person to another and also on an institutional level. So um, is there any difference in the uh, like reported incidents of Islamophobic attacks uh, between the former administration and this current administration? I mean, does it um, change according to change in the uh, who is in the White House? Because we know uh, that uh, President uh, Trump, former President Trump said uh, Islam hates us, for instance, in one of the interviews. And he did the travel ban. But when it comes to Biden, uh, he doesn't uh, make these uh, statements. So do you think there is less Islamophobia now or it's always there? Islamophobia is always there, no matter who we have as a president, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Um, and that has continued to exist, um, you know, for, for, for decades. And so, for, of course, Islamophobia can increase depending on the rhetoric that is being skewed by who is in power. And so we definitely saw an increase in anti-Muslim hate crimes. We saw a normalization of Islamophobia because it was being said so casually um, from the White House during the Trump administration, because he was implementing policies, like you had mentioned, like the travel ban, because of his comments of him saying Islam hates us and hinting at uh, a Muslim database that needed to, to, to be created. So absolutely, um, it definitely increases depending on who's in power, depending on um, current affairs and world news and what's happening in the world and what's happening that day. This can all spike uh, Islamophobia. But if you ask Muslim Americans, you know, uh, they continue to face Islamophobic incidents. They continue to face anti-Muslim bias and, and prejudice, uh, despite who's in power, despite who's in office, you know. Um, having a, a boss who's going to retaliate against you because you're Muslim, um, you know, happens regardless who's in power. If you ask a Muslim child in school who's being bullied, um, sometimes by an adult, um, also uh, can happen um, despite who's the president. I think the latest survey that I saw um, in 2021, as the, the most recent one I could remember, 
um, over two-thirds of Muslim Americans said that they have faced um, some sort of Islamophobia. It was a study that had surveyed over 1,000 Muslims uh, across the country uh, by the University of California. Um, the report was called Islamophobia Through the Eyes of Muslims. And so it was nearly all of them, 98% said that they believed Islamophobia existed in the U.S., and 95% said that it was a problem. Um, and so I don't think it matters too, too much whether it exists or not. I think a, a, a harsh reality that we uh, have to come to agree with is that anti-Muslim prejudice will continue to exist. Now, what is happening in Washington, D.C., what is happening in mainstream news, of course, is going to have a trickle-down effect as to how uh, people, how students, how you know, normal Muslim Americans uh, continue to go about their daily lives. Let me play uh, this audio, and then when it's over, uh, Rawaida, maybe you can explain to our listeners what they were listening to. Oh, my goodness. Hello? You there? Still on the call? Yeah, can you please come? Okay, Okay, Ruaida, what was that? It's uh, definitely a difficult audio to listen to. That is multiple uh, Muslim uh, family, friends, and relatives who are dialing 911. Uh, because someone, um, a man identified as Robert Avery, uh, was uh, harassing them, uh, yelling obscenities, racial remarks, and then eventually uh, took his vehicle, his car, and attempted to run over um, several Muslims who had gathered in a park um, in Sacramento uh, last Sunday for a potluck. So uh, from the images, our listeners, of course, can't see the images, but he ran like uh, with his like he's on on the on the grass and on the pavement and, and trying really to reach the people to mow them down with his car. I mean, in Sacramento, uh, that's what the uh, images. So what happened? Uh, like he ran away and the, the police came. Can you explain to us what happened? Sure. On that Sunday evening, um, a number of dozens of family uh, family members and friends had gathered for a potluck dinner in the park. Uh, one of their, uh, you know, friends was, was leaving, was moving out of state, and so they wanted to gather one last time. We were talking of children, women, men, um, just nearly 25 uh, family members. When 33-year-old Robert Avery first approached the women in the group yelling obscenities, demanding them that they leave the park. The men quickly came in when they saw what was happening, um, and he started harassing them as well, also uh, using uh, racial slurs. Um, and they tried to defuse the situation. I talked to one of uh, the individuals who was there, um, but, you know, nothing was working, so they immediately, you know, started calling 911 when... Um, Avery said he was going to bring his gun and, quote, shoot and bomb the Muslim families. And, you know, being in, in a country where gun violence is on the rise, this terrified uh, the, the families, and, and they were afraid that he was going to act on it. So he left for a couple of minutes, and then, as you played in your video, quickly returned 
with his cars, attempting to run them over, uh, really being in the area where people are standing, where cars normally don't travel on that, that pavement. Uh, you see families picking up their children, trying to get them out of the way. Um, and he, he drove off eventually. Um, the next day, Avery um, turned himself in uh, Monday morning where he was arrested on charges related to assault with a deadly weapon, a criminal threat, and a hate crime. Um, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office um, shortly announced thereafter. It's very disturbing to hear the little kids because some of them were 10 months old. I mean, they're li it's not like they're, um, um, you know, like teenagers, even uh, the oldest was 10, ex especially for the family of uh, this man. So very, really... Uh, disturbing, but you also mentioned in your article there is another incident that happened in a park also. These are supposed to be safe places and happy places for families together. Um, and this time, two women, can you uh, tell us a about that, uh, Ruwaida? Yeah, uh, it was not too long ago where also two Muslim women had their uh, hijabs pulled off in, in, in a park um, in Milwaukee, uh, and so they were also picnicking um, with with one uh, with one another. There were two Muslim women who, who were uh, Yemeni American who um, believed that they were targeted be be because of their their hijab. And you know, you mentioned the, the children earlier, and I think this is something that is uh, incredibly traumatizing for for folks who are so small because they just know the fear that they felt. So they just know. Uh, the, the adults being scared, that they were scared. Um, I had, you know, this one father tell me that his children um, were, were sleeping with them in the same bed. They were too afraid to, to go back and sleep in their own rooms. He himself didn't want his children to play outside uh, by themselves anymore. You know, he used to let them roam around and they'd come home. Now he stands outside with them. And so when we're talking about the lasting impact um, these, you know, incidents have, it's not just about the, the horrifying uh, incident that takes place, but it's also the trauma uh, that comes with it. It's also the difficult conversations with the children that comes with it. It's also the questioning of one's sense of belonging and safety. And so when we're discussing um, acting upon anti-Muslim prejudice and we're talking about Islamophobia, I think it's incredibly important to talk about the, the really vicious aftermath that comes with it. And uh, finally, I know, Rawaida, you have to go, but you do wear the hijab. You're a journalist. You um, are everywhere. Um, do you ever feel uh, unsafe or you project, uh, you know, um, a sense of uh, security? I mean, I, I don't wear the hijab myself, but I can be... Um, it takes a lot of courage, actually, uh, to be like walking and everybody knows you're a Muslim. With me, nobody might know I am a Muslim or Jewish or atheist or anything. But with you, um, everywhere you go, people know that you are a Muslim. Do you feel like unsafe or you're used to it or what? It's definitely a mixed bag. I mean, there are instances where um, I, I do feel unsafe where I'm, you know, planning out my, my route with extra scrutiny. I'm self, I'm very aware, hyper aware of my, um, where I am and my belongings, um, and perhaps where, 
uh, how people may react to my existence, uh, depending on where I am, especially reporting across the country. And of course, there are uh, instances where I feel very well supported um, and have been told that as well. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think the intersection of my, my identity and the work that I do um, does happen more frequently than I would like. Uh, but, you know, I'm grateful to, to get up every day and, and, and still have the safety of my home, the support of my newsroom, um, and the confidence of my faith to, to, to continue to do this work. Because it's not just me. It's also uh, so many other Muslim women um, who cover, who face the intersection of, you know, uh, the patriarchy, sexism, and Islamophobia that, you know, that gendered Islamophobia uh, puts them in a, in a very uh, particularly difficult place. And you, you continue to add the qualifiers, right? And then if you have, like, a black Muslim woman or a Muslim woman who's an immigrant who mm-hmm. does not speak English, uh, the, the challenges continue to be uh, profound. But um, it's why doing this work is so important to me, and I hope others uh, feel the same when they read my story. Yeah, I think Huffington Post did something wonderful when they decided to have the uh, Islamophobia and Immigration uh, Service. I'm not sure when did this uh, start, but uh, I think it helped a lot because this is how I found you, uh, Ahmed, and I found you and found that you have uh, this amazing voice uh, that goes out there and explains these complex uh, issues. Do you know when Huffington Post started this uh, uh, Islamophobia and immigration uh, service? Yeah, I, I started the position myself. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> my newsroom when, when I first came in, creating the role um, and really founding upon it. And I'm really grateful to have their support um, consistently for, for many years now, almost a decade now. That I've been doing this. Um, and so, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Very Th- grateful. Thank God. Thank you so much, Rwaida Abdelaziz, senior reporter covering Islamophobia and immigration at the Huffington Post, for being on True Talk. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Rwaida. Likewise. Always love coming on. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Um, this wraps this uh, segment. Uh, let me go to my favorite, favorite music uh, by what's his name? can't believe I forgot his name. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anyways, um, when we come back, I have something quite interesting for you coming back. Omar Bashir, Omar Bashir. It's a senior moment. Omar Bashir and this song he wrote for his mom. It's called My Mother.
and welcome back to True Talk. I meant to play this segment uh, more uh, than usual, almost uh, two uh, minutes, because I wanted you to listen to the Oud. The Oud is a very, very uh, Arabic uh, type of popular, uh, rounded uh, kind of instrument. I think lute uh, would be the closest thing in the Western world. So Ahmed and I always uh, play uh, music and I think inshallah, God willing, he's going to be here next week with me on the show. Uh, we always play different kinds of musics. I'm not sure you can differentiate that some is from the Gulf, sometimes Ahmed and I mention, or if it's from Sudan, or if it's from Yemen, because Yemeni music is different than the one in the Gulf, let's say Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Kuwait, for instance, uh, and is different from Lebanon, different from Syria, but close to each other, and different from Jordanian or Palestinian, these Bilad al Sham or um, the Syria area, they're, they're similar in a way. But once you go to Libya or you go to Mauritania or you go to Morocco, uh, you have different kind of instruments. Or even if it's the same instrument, it might uh, be played differently. And of course, the accent and the beat uh, is different. And we have in the Arabic language something called maqamat, which I can't explain. <laughs> That's why I want you to listen to this wonderful production by the Kennedy Center about um, the music, the styles of music of the Arab world. So I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did yesterday. Uh, and again, if you have any comments, please send them to DJ at WMNF.org. I thought we will have less politics today and more of understanding the music that Ahmed and I play. If time permits, I will play another uh, segment also that explains this music. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and this is from the Kennedy Center. This is Arabesque, an exploration of the music of the Arab world. Hello, I'm Josh Collinet, host of the public radio show Afropop Worldwide. In this segment, we'll learn about the styles of Arab music. The world is getting smaller. Satellite broadcasts and the internet are bringing us closer and closer together. And it may seem like all our cultures are blending into one. But there was a time before... And it's the reason we have the diversity that we still see around us. Why Chinese music, for instance, sounds different from the music of France. And it's why music of the region known as the Arab world has a sound all its own. Even though I'm very interested in jazz, I will never play jazz like an American does. I mean, Raihi is a musician from Tunisia in Northern Africa. Uh, I'll never play pop like an American does because I'm who I am and I, I come from a certain environment that even Tunisian dialect is a mixture of so many words from Italian, from Maltese, from French. So our music expresses very much that diversity. The music 
music of the Arab world comes from a common root. Just like Western music, it grew out of the music of the ancient Greeks. And you will find similarities in instruments, in rhythms, in the way music is performed from country to country. But the Arab world is spread out over thousands of miles. And back when people and ideas didn't travel far, it developed dozens of regional and local musical traditions. Annelies Thomas is a music teacher at the Jefferson Center, a performing arts center in Roanoke, Virginia. There were travelers that would travel through the region and would bring their instruments and would bring their music. There's great ideas that travel really well and, and get picked up everywhere and other ideas that sort of simmer beneath the surface. So slowly at first and then faster and faster, musical ideas spread through the Arab world, today making up a fascinating tapestry. The Arab world basically refers to the whole geographic area in which people speak Arabic. So today you'll find Arabic-speaking peoples all the way from Morocco in the west through North Africa. Uh, you'll find them in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine. You'll find Arabs as far east as Iraq. Saudi Arabia, of course, is an Arab country, and all of these countries around the Arab Gulf, Oman, Bahrain. So it really is a wide geographic area. Let's take a trip then, back and forth through time and types of music and all around the Arab world to try and get a full appreciation of just how many types categories or genres of music there are. Now, when we talk about categories in the US or in Europe, we have what we call classical music. And then we talk about pop music or folk music. Just hearing these, you know they are very different from each other. In the Arab world, you are much less likely to find that kind of split. As Annelies Thomas says, in Arab music, you've got a lot of artists that draw on traditional or folk music and bring it into their classical music or their pop music. I mean, Raihi is an example of this. We played a long time the Arabic classical music, but then we got to that point where we needed to express ourselves as modern Tunisians nowadays. So there's not that same formal split that we talk about between classical or folk music. But that doesn't mean the Arab world doesn't have musical categories that are given the same respect as Western classical. This is a group called Habab Al-Andalus, young men of Andalus. They play in an ancient style that dates back to when the Arab world stretched all the way to Spain. Their conductor is Debbie Mohamed Amin. It's an 8th century old art form that started in Andalusia and then moved to Morocco. And the Moroccans have added a lot to it over the years. Like Western classical music, Andalusian music often features a large orchestra. The difference is that an Andalusian orchestra is all strings. There are no wind instruments. And in this case, you'll hear that the orchestra is backing up a singer. Each individual instrument in the orchestra tends to do its own ornamentation with a lot of flourish. As Annelies Thomas says, It gives this richness, this feeling of almost courtly elegance, I guess, is one way to describe it. 
But Morocco is not the only storehouse of older musical traditions. You can also find people playing ancient forms of music in Iraq, specifically in Baghdad. This is a musical genre called makam. It has a couple of elements that make it distinct. For one thing, the songs are very long. Annelies Thomas explains. You'll find pieces grouped together in a kind of a medley, with one piece progressing to another, uh, usually having the same musical scale. Another distinct element of makam music is the rhythm. The rhythm of this selection is a 10-beat rhythmic cycle called Jarjuna. It sounds like this. Doom, tak, doom, tak, doom, tak, doom, tak. So those are some of the oldest styles of Arab music. There's another that is not so old, but still not what young Arabs would call contemporary, though their grandparents might. This is the great Egyptian singer Um Kultum, probably the most important Arab singer of the modern era. As Sudanese musician Salma Lassal puts it, Um Kultum's status is so high. She's like a pyramid, and I wish I could be half as high. Um Kulthum started singing in the 1920s in Cairo, the early days of radio. Egypt had very powerful radio stations, and in the 1930s and 40s, Um Kulthum's voice spread throughout the Arab world. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM, and I am your host, Samar. And I am playing a segment that was created by the Kennedy Center to explain the music that Ahmed and I play all the time. I stopped it here because she's my favorite singer, Imkalathum. She's Egyptian. I think she passed away at the age of 75. Um, And she just stopped singing maybe two years before her death. When she was uh, young and at her prime, she was very, very famous. And it was after Jamal Abdel Nasser who has... Um, let's say socialist leaning and uh, was in the camp of the Soviet Union Um Kalthum had some thyroid problem and she needed a very 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 delicate surgery and nobody in Egypt or Europe would touch her or in Russia or at the time the Soviet Union because nobody wanted to jeopardize Um, Kalthum losing her voice and believe it or not she came to the US uh, to um, a naval hospital and they were able to use latest um, innovation in surgery uh, on her uh, throat without ruining her uh, vocal cords. So this is M. Kalthum. I love her. Ahmed doesn't like her. So I always try to play her. But as the gentleman was explaining, uh, the song could go for an hour. And if the and it's usually live, and if the people are enjoying it, and they start clapping or say, Allah, Allah, ya sit, ya madam, uh, this is wonderful. She might repeat the maqam or the couplet 
or the segment. So you could <laughs> be listening for another 20 minutes, but it is so alive. It makes you like feel alive. And this is Im Kalsoum. People still listen to her and uh, love her. She passed away, as I said, I think in the 1975. So this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. And thank you to the emails I am getting. Um, you can send them to dj at wmnf.org. dj at wmnf.org. Again, uh, this is Styles of Music of the Arab World on True Talk. The sophisticated vocal techniques of Um Kulthum made her the most important singer of the 20th century in the Arab world. She was also hugely popular. She died the same year as the president of Egypt, President Nasser, and more people came to her funeral than the presidents. <laughs> One thing any listener to Um Kulthum can hear the artistry that she brings to the music, to the specific subtle things that she brings to each vocal line. It was said that she never sang the same line twice. But even Um Kulthum, with all of her fame, doesn't compare with the popularity of the Arab world's folk music, which is a music played by and sung for just plain folks. As musician Amin Raihi puts it, uh, I would say the Western classical music is a very precise music compared to the Arab one, which is more profound. This is music played by people in a community, played for the entertainment of their own neighbors and friends, and played by musicians who, when they are not performing, might be working as a plumber or truck driver. This kind of informal playing is, according to Tunisian musician Jamel Laroussi, something ingrained in the Arab world. If you learn things, so it means that you played them and you played them a thousand times, and to, to have this a passion to play a thousand times a thing, is love. It's because you love it. You'll hear folk music at any kind of community event, a festival, a saint celebration, but especially you'll hear it at weddings. This is Salma Al-Assal singing. Her work is within the tradition of Arab wedding music by women. It's free-flowing music and it's often improvised. That means made up on the spot. Women like me perform improvisationally. In weddings, singers improvise. There are also popular singers who perform improvisationally and spontaneously. On a wedding day, there are songs for dressing the bride, for bathing the groom, for when the bride and groom leave their parents' home. And just like anywhere else in the world, at the reception, there's music for dancing. What you're hearing now is what's called a debke. Annelise Thomas explains. A debki refers to a kind of dancing that often happens at weddings where people dance in a line holding hands and dancers stamp in time to the rhythm that you hear. 
end of the line is where dancers have the chance to show off their moves. By doing kicks or squats or different kinds of moves that show what a good dancer they are. As we said earlier, the world is getting smaller. Cultures are mixing and according to Sudanese singer Salma Al-Assal, it's changing the music of the Arab world. The songs have changed. In the days of Um Kutum, songs used to be sophisticated and beautiful like James Brown's songs. But now you have Chris Brown. In the past we had Um Kutum and now there's Sadal Sawyer. Samal Asal may think things have gone downhill, but Annelise Thomas says there is still plenty of beautiful, sophisticated Arab pop music. She points, for example, to Kazem Al Sair. He's an Iraqi pop star who uses a lot of the things that we find in any other pop music, things like synthesizers and keyboards, but he also uses a large orchestra. And Thomas says... He works with poetry that is known as fine poetry. So this selection, Ikhtari, come from a poem by the famous poet Nizar al-Kabani. Either the beloved can come and live with him and die with him, or he's going to immortalize her on the pages of his notebook. But it is true that the wider world is encroaching on the Arab world. As Salma Al-Sal says, We all listen to Western music. We listen to Boney M, even in Sudan. We listen to all the old stuff. Tina Charles's disco songs, Bob Marley, all that. Will there be a pure Arab sound in 20 years? Who knows? And Elise Thomas says, well, like everywhere, you'll find people, especially people of an older generation, that are saying that the music is all starting to sound the same. But personally, I think that this just gives a lot more creative freedom to individual artists. And according to Tunisian musician Amin Raihi, even if things do mix, it does not matter after all. For me, music crosses the frontiers, and you can see that you, can, you are from Tunisia, you play with an American, or actually our band is made of Spanish, of Dutch, of uh, Indians, uh, Turkish, and you communicate with people, even though sometimes you don't even share the same spoken language. Um, you, you know, you see literature, you see the words, there is an understanding. In music, it's very relative. You can play the same piece to 100 people and everyone will understand it its own way. Thanks for listening. I'm Welcome back to True Talk. I hope you enjoyed this uh, as much as I did. There is actually a part two, but uh, it takes 12 uh, minutes and it uh, goes uh, deeper into uh, explaining the d different scales 
I think that's what they call them, scales in music. My knowledge in music really is not very good. I attempted to learn the accordion. I don't know if people know what that is, but it's like a German kind of instrument. Um, you blow like air. <laughs> Anyways, and I wasn't good. And then my mom got us an Iraqi Kurdish um, teacher to teach us the piano and I was terrible. Also, I regret because at older age, I realized that was an opportunity not available to everyone. Uh, but um, I enjoy music very much. And as you have seen, uh, I hope you were able to notice that there is a different dialect, different style, dif different uh, percussions, different instruments. Even if the instrument is the same, but there is a different scale in uh, playing it. Maybe in a couple of weeks, I can do that um, and play some of it. But Almost all these songs we played on this show. So I thought it would be wonderful if we get a chance to explain it to you. Uh, but it won't be complete unless I play the other uh, one, which is about 12 minutes, but we're running out of time. Let me go to uh, emails uh, we received. This is an, a text message, I think, or no, to DJ. Uh, I just want to thank you for True Talk. I've been learning so much. Thank you again. Thank you for sending us. I think this is from Tom. And then uh, there is uh, one from Bo. No, one from... Oh, gosh, there is another one. A longer one. I can't find it, but it's a longer one. And I think he is talking uh, about how when you have a teacher, uh, yes, uh, when you have a teacher with a diverse uh, background, uh, the children can learn uh, more. I thank you for uh, sending this, these emails and thank you always for supporting uh, WMNF. Inshallah, God willing. Uh, Dr. Hatim Bazian will be with us uh, next week. He's an expert on Islamophobia and uh, other things. And then my co-host is supposed to be back from his vacation. And soon, I hope I can take mine. Thank you for supporting WMNF and supporting True Talk. WMNF Tampa, NPR News is coming next. <laughs> 